I grabbed this picture, I could only think of Ray Hollenbach and Pam Robles. And if you know them, they and maybe maybe Dr. John, like DJ, you ran off and did some counterculture days, didn't you? That's right. And the Amish, he actually did. But I could I could mostly just think of Pam Robles and and uh, Ray Hollenbach. If you see them, you know, give them give them the, the what's up from the '60s. But uh, that's not entirely what we're talking about, and uh, hopefully we'll unpack that, at least in the beginning here this morning. We're going to be discovering over the next five weeks what it means to become God's distinct people. And uh, I'm really excited about this, because this is something the Holy Spirit's been chatting with me about personally here for about three months. Uh, But before we get into that part, I want to begin with this. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, and it's one of his shortest parables, but I actually think it's one of his most important ones. This is what he said. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or yeast, that a woman took and she hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's what Jesus said the kingdom's like. little tiny bit of yeast, you can barely see it, like a little pinch right inside the dough. Close it up, and then the whole batch of dough rises. That's what Jesus says the kingdom is like. Now, I believe this parable works on multiple levels. I believe this is one of those parables that's about you and me as individuals, but I also believe that this is one of those parables that's about all of us collectively as humanity. What Jesus is saying is this, that you and me as individuals, that when we begin to put trust into Jesus, when we begin to trust God... something really amazing happens. And part of what happens is, is that the yeast of the kingdom gets hidden inside of your life. And you begin to believe something, and all of a sudden this hidden work begins to happen, and something quite apart from your own abilities begins to take place. And your life begins to rise according to the principles of God's kingdom. Like things change. You were once flat. And now you begin to rise up. I also think it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really subtle, and Jesus is good at subtle sometimes, it's a really subtle resurrection verse. A little bit of kingdom, you, you, get, you get raised up. And this happens in our life. And it's also, a, this is one of those parables that's been very um, encouraging to me, because what Jesus is saying is, is that there's something at work, even when it feels like and looks like nothing is happening. Anybody here ever feel like that in your life? Like, okay, I did this thing with God, and now I'm hoping to be more like Jesus, but parts of my thoughts and my actions, they're not looking like Jesus, and we get all freaked out. You've been around like the freaked out Jesus people who are totally concerned about everything all the time, and they feel like they're just hanging by a thread over, over hell, you know, and they can't sleep. Like, I occasionally run into these people. Well, you should take heart because the yeast of the kingdom's in there and you may not feel it and you may not see it, but the truth is it's actually doing something. Like you got to know that. This is the central Christian stuff. It's actually doing something. But it's not just working at an individual level. This is also a macro level. This is all over the world. The yeast of the kingdom has come into the world. The yeast of the kingdom has come into the world and it may not look like it's touching everything, but the truth is it's touching everything. And one day the entire planet is going to rise according to the kingdom. Everything, the kingdom of God is going to give expression and it's going to fill up the whole world. Isaiah says that the whole world is going to be filled with glory. That's what Isaiah says. But I believe this is a micro and a macro teaching of Jesus. And the truth is, if you and I look critically at all at the world, this is no doubt already happening. If you look at 
history, if you just look at the world through a historical lens, one of the things we see is that the kingdom of God has, in fact, worked its way through the planet like yeast. You guys know the story. Jesus shows up, and when he's along about 30 years old, he calls 12 people to come alongside him and to be his disciples, literally to be his students. And they become students of Jesus. And those 13 guys, actually 12, because one was a traitor, so 12 guys from the backwaters of Galilee end up bringing the yeast of the kingdom into the earth. And over the last 2,000 years, that yeast of the kingdom has covered the globe. There are people who believe and trust in Jesus everywhere. Like, you can't believe the stuff that's on the news. Like, the news tries to tell you that the church is going to blow away and everyone's going to become like some sort of new agnostic atheist and hate God. I'm here to tell you, people love God more now than they ever have in the whole world. Like, the yeast of the kingdom is everywhere. In China, more people are getting saved and coming into faith than they are even here in the States. It's like people who were far away from Jesus, the kingdom of God was already there. It was never not there. They're becoming alive and awake and aware to what God's doing. Like, you can't get away from this stuff. Like, you can't believe everything that's on the news. And so there's a lot of reasons to be encouraged. The yeast of the kingdom is doing stuff. But if we're honest, and if we're the least bit self-aware, if, the, if we're the least bit studious about what's happening in the world, it's also obvious that other yeasts have done a good job of replicating. It's also obvious that there are forces at work in the world, and they've given rise to all sorts of pain and trouble. In a room this size, I'd say there's all kinds of pain and trouble yeasts that have expressed themselves in your life. Anybody had any pain or trouble? Yeah. So it's not just that the yeast of the kingdom is working, but there are other yeasts that are working. And um, the truth is, not all of the bad yeasts seem like bad yeast at the beginning. In fact, some of, some of the worst yeasts are the ones that at the beginning seem like the most benign, the ones that seem the most harmless, the ones that seem maybe even good. Uh, now, we could talk for the rest of the day about which of these yeasts are benign yeast and which ones are harmless which ones seem bad or seem good but end up being bad. We could talk all day, but one of them that's real, that's real current for us, one of them that's, that's, uh, that probably has a connection point in every single person in this room, I know it does in me, is the yeast of consumerism. It seems benign. It seems like, well, it's not such a bad thing. You know, just go, go ahead and you know, buy something. In fact, if you listen to certain people, If you listen to certain people, uh, certain people will tell you that not only is consumerism not a bad thing, certain people will tell you that consumerism is actually a good thing. It, it, like, stimulates the economy. Like, you know, what we need is people going out and buying stuff. We need people using their credit cards. We need people going to Walmart. That's what we need so the, the economy will work. But one of the things that happens is when that yeast of consumerism gets into the lump of dough, when you can't be happy unless you're buying something, Or when it feels like the only way I'm going to get a little happy release today is to go and buy something. Anybody ever have that? I do. Like, it's like, I just need to go buy something. I'm in a bad mood. I don't even know. And the next thing you know, you're at some store and you're buying something that you didn't even want. And you get it home. You're like, why did I do that? And you realize, I just was trying to get an emotional high. What is that? It's the yeast of consumerism. It's, It's infecting us. Like, where did that come from? And the thing that sits right beneath If we're honest with ourselves, the thing that sits right beneath Western consumerism is dissatisfaction. That's what's wrong with it. It looks benign, like consumerism. Go buy something. You'll be happy. But what sits right beneath it is actually 
dissatisfaction. Have you noticed that? You buy something, you like it for a couple months. And then you're like, this sucks. I want the new one. You get an iPhone and you have it for six months and then they come out with a new one and then someone comes in and then pretty soon your iPhone sucks and you want the new one, right? Like you can't even be happy with it. You can't turn it on. You don't even like it. You hate your home screen. You hate your codes. You hate your apps. You hate everything. Why? It's the yeast of consumerism. Or it's that feeling you get when you go to the mall. You know the mall feeling? Like you were perfectly okay with yourself until you went into the mall. And then as soon as you're in the mall, you take about 30 steps in the mall and you feel like you're fat, you're ugly, all your clothes are rotten threads, and they've just been recently removed from a dead corpse. You're like, I was pretty okay until I went to the mall. And you're like, these jeans are awful. This shirt is terrible. In fact, I'm, an, I'm ugly. I'm a terrible person. No one likes me. All of those emotions, all of those emotions are coming from a simply, what seems like, benign yeast of consumerism. And then a curious thing happens. Then a curious thing happens. Sometimes we wake up. Not everyone wakes up. But sometimes some people wake up. Sometimes some people wake up and then they go back to sleep and then they wake up again. But sometimes we wake up and we we start to think, you know what? There's more to life than this. Like, there's more to life than another trip to the mall. There's more to life than trying to get a Cadillac in my garage. Like, this, this is not right. Like, something is not okay here. And sometimes we wake up from the misery and the dissatisfaction. And sometimes it's just the debt on our credit card that causes us to wake up. And we begin to reconsider life. We want something different. And we start looking on the Internet for ways to live as a minimalist. (laughs) Have you ever looked on the internet for ways to live as a minimalist? This is a very cool thing to do right now. If you're like, if you're against consumerism, you need to get on the internet and learn how to live as a minimalist. Learn how to live in uh, an eight by 14. Like, you know, those Facebook is full of these cracker box structures that people think are cool, right? Because they're going to live as a minimalist. I'm going to live in 48 square feet. There's going to be a little shower, which is also where I wash my food. <laughs> you guys have seen this, right? Yeah, I'm going, to get a, I'm going to get a shipping container. I'm going to build my house out of a shipping container. I don't need a house. What I need is a shipping container. You know? We start investigating. What is all of that about? It's, about? it's about waking up. It's about waking up and wanting something different. You start planting a garden. You start decluttering. You start taking your stuff to the goodwill and trying not to go replace it with anything. And in some ways, when you wake up a little bit, you start feeling better. Sometimes it's only momentary. But that whole scenario that I'm talking about there, that whole scenario of having the yeast of consumerism, or maybe it's some other yeast for you, that gives rise to some really ugly stuff, feelings of dissatisfaction, comparison, hating your life, all of that, and then wanting to do something different. All of that, at the root, at the root is a really common impulse for human beings. And it's the impulse, it's the impulse to want to be countercultural. Everybody in here has this impulse, especially at the vineyard. Now, this is sort of a deal 
everywhere, but it's especially true at the vineyard. If you're a part of the vineyard, if you're a part of the vineyard and you stay, it's because you're probably somewhat of a countercultural person at, at a certain level. Like, we don't attract normal people. We don't. Now, there are some people here who look very normal. There's even some people here who have, like, normal jobs and, like, even wear khakis. However, <laughs> however, even those people, when you get to know the khaki wearers, one of the things you find out is that, that it, they're not, like, countercultural or subculture people in terms of their fashion, but they might be subculture people or counterculture people in terms of their ideologies. We've got, we've got intellectual outcasts here. We've got theological outcasts here. We've got social outcasts here. It's just sort of what it takes to be here, right? If you're hoping, if you are hoping to be like just real American, like real go with the flow, you're at the wrong church. Yeah, so there's this impulse inside of all of us, especially here at the Vineyard. We want to be countercultural. And this impulse grows after you've done your level best to go with the crowd and found out that the crowd isn't really who you are and doesn't quite fit you. Maybe you grew up and realized that consumerism wasn't going to be a great way to live your life. Or maybe you just woke up to the fact that you began to realize that you don't have a good enough job to be an A-list consumer. Like, you don't make enough money to be a really great consumer. That's kind of what happened to me. I was like, you know what? I could be an awesome consumerist, but it's just I make so little money, you know? <laughs> you need a certain amount of dollars to do that. Or maybe, or maybe you woke up to the fact that your body was never going to fit the American cultural aspirations for beauty. And after you figured that out, you also got tired of buying magazines and fulfilling your cultural obligation of worshiping those who did have a body that fulfilled... American obligations and aspirations of beauty. By the way, that's always the subtext in America. The subtext in America works like this uh, when it comes to beauty and bodies. Uh, You need to be a beautiful person, and if you can't be a beautiful person, then you should at least be an ugly person who buys the magazines and worships the beautiful people. Right? That's That's the subtext. But eventually you get sick of both. Eventually you get sick of both, And when you get tired of both, then there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity for something else to grow. Maybe you just got tired of living blindly toward what the TV said was the good life. In all of those moments, there's an impulse towards counterculture. Before we go any more, we should probably define our terms. What is counterculture? Well, counterculture is this. It's a subculture whose values and norms of behavior differ substantially from those of the mainstream society and often in opposition to the mainstream. So as long as there's a culture, there will be a counterculture. As long as there's a culture, there'll be a subculture. And I feel like one of the things that the Holy Spirit is inviting the vineyard into is he's inviting us to be counterculture. There's always been subculture. Uh, One of the most recent countercultural movements that's happening in America today is something called Occupy Wall Street. You guys heard of that? Occupy Wall Street. It's kind of an odd, odd place to start. But here's what Occupy Wall Street is. It's some people who got together and they basically went and sat down in Wall Street in protest of the fact that the richest 1% in the world are basically 
they have all the stuff and they're controlling everything while the 99% are basically puppets at their disposal. Now, I realize uh, they, they hold up the signs that say we are the 99% and all that. I, I realize it's a bit of a, an odd example because the 99% are the majority, yet it's still a countercultural movement because, because, uh, because those who have the power and the money are creating a culture that mostly benefits themselves. So when, when the group of people went to Wall Street and said, hey, this is not okay, they were actually becoming a countercultural movement to the very few who were basically organizing the whole world and still are organizing the whole world towards themselves. Maybe you don't know anything about Occupy Wall Street. Maybe you think it's dumb. But I promise you, you remember grunge in the 90s. Right? If you're my age, if you're my age, this picture means a lot to you. I spent a good portion of my high school years looking for that green sweater. I knew a guy who found a green sweater like Kurt Cobain's. He went from the margins of popularity in high school right to the center. Like people loved people. I remember walking into class and they were like, where did you get that sweater? It's amazing. Kurt Cobain. I spent a good portion of my years in high school also with my hair dyed red from Kool-Aid. Anybody ever do that in the mid nineties? I spent about 10 years like that. But before there was Kurt Cobain or Nirvana, before there was Pearl Jam, there was, there were the punks in the late seventies. I really like this one guy over here. This guy. Like, this is commitment. You know? I I was looking for a picture of the punks, you know. I I really like the punks who wear the dog collars. I like that. I I don't know why I like that, but I do. And then before the 70s punks, there there were the hippies in the 60s. All of these are countercultures, countercultural movements. But before there were the hippies in the 60s, there were, beat, there were the beats in the 50s. You guys know who that is? It's Allen Ginsberg. We could play this game all day long. But the point is this. As long as there's a culture, there's a counterculture. As long as there's a mainstream, there is a subculture that's moving in the opposite direction, trying to bring balance or trying to bring some correction but here's the point the point is this all of our ideas and values they grow and eventually they take root and they form culture but some of the ideas and some of the values that we have are really powerful and they don't just create like a little micro culture they create like predominant prevailing culture And then once a predominant culture exists, certain people will look at the fruit on the tree and they'll give a good inspection and they'll ask themselves, is this any good? Is it any good at all? Is this what we really planted? For instance, we thought we were planting prosperity in America and we went to the tree and we picked the fruit and we inspected it, not realizing that what we were planting was actually consumerism and disappointment. See, we we thought we were planting we thought we were planting prosperity and then we let that prosperity tree grow up a little bit and the fruit on it is actually just widespread consumerism and I hate my life. Similarly, we thought that we were planting a crop of encouragement and 
that tree grew up and what we actually grew was a crop of entitlement. You met those entitled people? How, how did the entitled people come to exist? Here's how. It's really simple. Uh, enti- uh, sweet mom and sweet dad get together and they have sweet babies. And sweet dad and sweet mom came from a crappy house where people basically didn't care about them and and not neglect, but just like, depends on how old you are, but just like you were just another mouth to feed. It might be one way to say it. And so sweet mom and sweet dad are like, dude, we ain't doing that. We're going to have a household of encouragement. And they look at sweet babies and they tell them, you're awesome. It's a good thing they are awesome. You're awesome. You're really great. And then even when the sweet babies go to Garcia's and throw a crazy fit and explode everything and the whole restaurant comes to a screeching halt, mom looks at the screaming baby and says, you're awesome. I love you. You're great. And what do you get when you have a household of encouragement like that nonstop? It grows up, healthy little tree. And the fruit off of that sucker is going to be entitled. And when he's 18 years old, hell on wheels. I don't know what happened over there. Can we get it on the audio archive? This brings me to why we're actually doing a series called Counterculture. Here's why. A couple months ago, I was listening to a really smart man talk. And he was talking about the ways that the church can and should engage with wider culture. Gave a really good talk. He was basically talking about how the church should and could be culturally relevant. Now, this is not a new conversation that's been happening in the church. The truth is this has been going on really in a pointed manner for the better part of 30 years. But he was giving a really good talk about how to reach out and engage culture and, and ways that church should be culturally relevant. It's an important topic. He was smart, did a great job presenting it. And the truth is, the whole time he was giving his talk, I didn't disagree with anything he said. Except this little voice in my head wouldn't quit talking. <laughs> you know, I don't know what yours sounds like. Mine sounds like that sometimes. <laughs> anyway, but I had this voice inside my head that kept talking to me. And for two days, I could only think one thought. And it was always related back to that talk this man gave. And the thought that I kept having was this. Is it possible that the church has become so culturally relevant that she has become kingdom irrelevant? And I couldn't get it out of my head. And after about two days of this thought coming into my head, is it possible that the church has become so culturally relevant that we're kingdom irrelevant? After about two days of thinking that thought, I became aware, wow, this is probably not my own thought. This is probably the Holy Spirit. Is it possible that we've become so fluent in the ways and the means of our own culture that we've lost touch with our native tongue? Is it possible that we've grown so accustomed to what is that we are not able to conceive of anything different? This is really important. We need an imagination that can conceive of something different. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He's talking about Abraham. Chapter 11. I think this is a major counterculture verse. And this, I want this to take root in us. 
The writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. If you're familiar with the Abraham story at all, one of the things you know is that Abraham lived in a city. The city's name was Ur, and at the time, Ur was about as happening a place as you can imagine. Uh, in Abraham's day, Ur was New York City. It didn't get cooler than Ur. That was what it was. And God said, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to leave your mom and dad. I want you to leave Ur and go out into a place that I'll show you. And Abraham literally left and started walking in a direction that he had never been before in his entire life. And what was he looking for? Well, Abraham maybe didn't even know, probably couldn't even articulate it other than he was following God. But the writer of Hebrews says that he was looking for a city whose foundations were designed, built, and laid by God himself. And I think this is what it means to be countercultural. It means to, it means to go on pilgrimage looking for and imagining something that is designed and built by God. I'm here to tell you, Campbellsville doesn't need a better version of itself. Like what we need in Campbellsville is not a better version of Campbellsville. Uh, we don't need the Louisville light version of Campbellsville. We don't need New York City light in Campbellsville. We don't need a more efficient government. We don't need better rules. What we need is another city altogether whose foundations were not made by anyone you know other than Jesus himself. We, we need a city that's out there. And because of that, God's people have always been a countercultural people. They've always, we've always been the people who are leaving one place to go to another. Uh, God's people have always been a little bit different. God's people have always been two clicks off of normal. God's people have always been other. You know those, you fill out the sheet, and it's like, uh, you are white, black, Hispanic, other. We're always, God's people are always that other box. You, you check it, that's, you're in the club. And so as we begin to engage this idea of the church being counterculture, I want, us to, I want us to keep three things in mind. These three things will work as something of a frame for us over the next few weeks. And the first thing I want us to keep in mind is that we need something to live for and something to live towards rather than something to live against and something to live away from. Abraham wasn't just pissed off at Ur, so he left. Abraham was following God. Okay, this is a big deal. Um, the reason we need something to live for is because in the church, when it comes to living as counterculture, uh, lots of people in the church have picked up this idea that the church should be something distinct and that God's people should be other. Lots of people have picked up on that. But usually what happens is the church will try to lay hold of that idea in a way that's profoundly unkingdom. And the two ways that the church usually lays hold of a counterculture idea is by trying to lay hold of it with either fear or anger. Always living away from something rather than towards something. Uh, some people in the church are envisioning a counterculture, but only because they're so afraid of culture. Well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because fear tends to breed a lack of engagement and isolationism. 
And one of the things I'd like to say right here is as we begin to explore counterculture, we're not going to disengage from anybody or any place. That's not what it means. Other people are envisioning a countercultural idea or a countercultural expression of the church and God's people, but they're only doing so because they're really angry at culture. They look at everything that's, that's happening in America, everything that's going on, everything that's happening at the high school, everything that's happening in families, and they're like, they're just angry. They're like, you know what? We don't, we're against it, you know? Ah! Those people, like fill in the blank, whatever your people are, the ones that you're most angry at. You, and we, we envision a counterculture based upon the people that we're either most afraid of or most angry at. And anger looks to engage, whereas fear looks to run away. But how many of you understand that that fighting rarely brings anyone into God's kingdom. Like you can't fight your way into God's kingdom. You can't argue way, your way into God's kingdom. You, you, can't, you can't punch someone into peace. You can punch them into pieces, but you can't punch them into peace. Not only that, but James says in his epistle, he says that man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And I hate that verse. The reason I hate it is because I'm a person who's given toward anger. And I hate any verse that says you can't be angry. But it's true, and we all know it to be true. You, you, can't, you can't anger somebody into God's good kind of life. And so what ends up happening is, fear tends to isolate and anger tends to push away. Rather than engage. Anger is usually an expression of negative strength. When we're sure in the church that we can wrestle a victory, we go out with angry confidence. The only trouble with that is what happens when people meet somebody stronger than we are. So both anger and fear lead to disengagement. And in being a countercultural movement here at the Vineyard, we're not looking for disengagement. Rather than living away from something, we want to live for something. Uh, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to get a picture of Abraham's city. I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to give us a picture of God's kingdom. And I feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to not live away from things as much as He just wants us to live for things and from things. What are some of the things He wants us to live for and from? What Really basic things. Just things like, you're a son and you're a daughter. Like people who really, really know that they're a beloved son and daughter. Wow, that's a counterculture in our day and age. Uh, most people in our culture are so profoundly insecure like deeply insecure, like most of every single thing that comes out of their mouth and most of their ideas are generated from a place of profound insecurity. Someone who knows that they're beloved of God and that it can never change, that changes who you are. And then you just begin to speak and act with a confidence that comes from being loved by Jesus. And then there's something we, you just, you're two clicks off of normal. Like people are like, I don't, I'm not being, I'm not being emotionally manipulated right now. Like, this is weird. Like, I talk to that person, and they don't mo- emotionally manipulate me. And, uh, and oftentimes, people can't even articulate that. They're just like, oh, I just want to be with them. Why? Well, because you're not emotionally manipulating them with your insecurity. So the Lord isn't trying to, like, take us away from something as much as He's wanting us to root into the fact that you're a son, you're a daughter, born from above, you're a lump of dough, you've got heavenly yeast multiplying in you right now. We've got to live for something. We've got to live from something. The second bit of framework that the Holy Spirit wants to give us is that Jesus is our best example in living a counterculture. Jesus is our best example. He's our best example because Jesus is God incarnate. 
Jesus is a man, 100% man, and Jesus is at the same time 100% God. And what we see here in the person of Jesus is that being countercultural isn't about disengagement. When God wanted to establish his heavenly alternative, he did not populate another planet. He simply reformed the one he has already started. This is a really big deal. This is so important. So God made the heavens and the earth, and he made people, and he put them on the earth. And when he did that, he said it was good. Some things got whacked out. When things started going south, God didn't say, okay, I'm going to go to work on Mars, and we'll just let that little hellhole do whatever it wants, right? No, he sent his son Jesus, and he began to reform what he had already done. So what we see is in Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, we see engagement We see engagement rather than disengagement. Not only that, but we see that Jesus, who is 100% man, is a perfect container for God. Meaning that, this is really important for counterculture people, meaning that you don't have to give up your humanity to live a spirit life. Now, one of the things that is propagated really often, especially in people who are trying to be super spiritual, are these ideas that to be spiritual, you have to let go of your humanity. And we see none of that in Jesus. We see Jesus coming to the earth. We see Jesus living a human life. And what we see is that humanness and what we might call earthiness are not impediments to God's coming kingdom. What we see in Jesus is that humanness is a perfect container for God. We're not looking for disengagement. We're not looking for isolation. We're not looking for retreat. And we're also not looking for answers which, dis- which diminish our humanity. We're not looking for a counterculture which diminishes humanity. What are some ways that uh, humanity gets diminished? Well, one of the real common ways, especially in church, for humanity to be diminished is um, people try to set out and live counterculture lives, and they're like, well, we want to be different. And then they begin to work the opposite of the way the rest of the world operates and thinks when it comes to things like, celebration how many of you understand that celebration is a really big deal like getting together eating some food drinking some drinks having a party staying up late like that's people stuff and you don't have to give up people stuff to do a god thing but spiritual people are always like well you gotta we're gonna we're gonna disengage we're gonna unplug we're gonna start living a spirit life and we don't see that at all uh it also means that we're not looking to avoid outsiders and we're not looking to avoid anyone based upon fear or con- uh, fear of contamination. Uh, so oftentimes the church is wanting to be a countercultural movement, but because they have so much fear and so much anger on their mindsets, uh, they, they actually become isolationists and rather living in the moment, they begin to divide spirit and blood away from one another. And what you end up with is you, you end up with these, these really strange people you really, these really strange people who are afraid of being contaminated by other people. I just want to say here at the Vineyard, we're going to be a counterculture people, and we're not afraid of anyone. Like, I'm not afraid of the drug people. I'm not afraid of, the, like, the crazy alcoholic wackos. I'm not afraid of the people who are uh, angry and, 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 and just, like, terrorizing their family. We're not, we're not looking for disengagement. In fact, one of the things that's going to be profoundly countercultural here is God wants to raise up people who are willing to go to those people rather than run away. That's what Jesus does. Like you, you go to them rather than run away. And by the way, going to them doesn't mean that we agree with everything they do. Like we've, we've over, we've overdone this agreement thing. Like you can love somebody and not agree with them. I mean, my wife and I disagree about all kinds of stuff. I love her crazy. 
Um, my, my spiritual father in so many ways is Ray Hollenbach. I love that man. I will love him. I will love him. I love him. I will never, ever, ever not love Ray. We disagree on all kinds of stuff. You should see the email threads that we write to each other. Yeah, we have equated agreement with, with love. It is not, that is not the truth. You can disagree with people. But one of the things that love always does, and one of the things that God's counterculture always does, is it, is it, 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 it looks for ways to engage. We're not afraid of being contaminated by the world. Leper comes up to Jesus and, and falls down on his feet. This is one of my favorite stories. It's in Mark chapter 1, I think like 40 through 43. And the leper says to Jesus, he says, Hey, you can make me well if you're willing. And Jesus says, I'm totally willing and touches him. What's the picture there? We're not afraid of being contaminated. In the kingdom of heaven, we have a reverse con- contagion. It goes out of us and it makes, us clean, makes others clean. Similarly, you hang out in church long enough and you'll run into people that believe in order to lay hold of God, you have to let go of your humanity. It's always really subtle. You you hear it in in the way that people talk and act. It's as though they believe that spiritual people have no needs. You've probably met these people, right? Like, I believe in Jesus. I don't have any needs. How are you doing? I'm blessed. You know that, you know, it's like, oh God, could we be any more fake right now? Any, like at all? I've talked to you every single morning for the last 5,000 years and you've told me that you're perfectly blessed for the last five years. You're lying. Can we just start right here? Like, you're lying. But what's sitting right beneath that is this idea that spiritual people don't have needs. It's the beginning of a divorce between my humanity and an attempt to lay hold of God. Like, I'm blessed. I don't, I don't have any needs. I don't have any money, and I don't need any money. Uh, everything's great. I've got a body full of cancer tumors, and I'm healthy, and I'm living, and everything's awesome, and everyone's wonderful, and my wife hates me, and my kids don't talk to me anymore, and I'm blessed. It's like, no, you're actually not. It sounds terrible, but there's 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 a there's an arrogance that permeates some believers, and it, it, it always begins by beginning to believe that we have to let go of our humanity in order to lay hold of God. We, it comes from not understanding the, the mysticalness of who Jesus is, the incarnation that God and man could live together. Uh, it, it has it has to do with this idea that you know uh, we really do need some things. You know, you really do need some food, and you really do need some water, and you really do need some shelter. And beyond that, you need some love, and you need some encouragement, and you need a community. And, like, you can't do it alone. Like, you need other people, and you need help. And some of the help you need isn't going to be in anybody in the room. Like, some of the help you need only comes from God. Like, and He isn't going to cause you to, like, veto your humanness in order to give you some help. Here's the problem with letting that little subtle lie of spiritual people are, are letting, when we let go of our humanity in, a, in an attempt to become a spiritual person. The, the real problem with that is this. Uh, it's a really big deal because it's a short leap from not loving our bodies or an earthly life. This is the way it begins. We begin by not valuing our own bodies, our own life, our own needs, or what it means, just humanness earthiness we begin there but pretty soon we morph in our thinking and and we begin to think that people are the problem see if you don't if you don't love if you don't love the body and if you don't love the earth the next thing you'll begin to think is you'll think that people are the problem 
I'm here to tell you, people are never the problem. People have problems, they're never the problem. That's a really good word. People are never the problem. Paul says in Ephesians that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but there are spiritual forces. What's the problem? Well, there are spiritual forces in the world. There are agents of good and agents of evil, and some of those guys just don't like you, and they want to kill us, okay? Uh, The spirit world is real. But beyond the spirit world being real, there's also just lies and deception in the world. People aren't the problem. The problem is people believe lies from the devil. That's the problem. But we will give in to believing that people are the problem if we, if we adopt a spirituality that is divorced from our own humanness and our own earthiness. And we don't have to do that. We don't see that in Jesus. I don't recommend it from you. We cannot be a countercultural movement that wants to separate a life here on this planet from loving God. And by the way, by the way uh, in times eschatology here for 10 seconds at the vineyard, uh, we're not leaving the planet, y'all. We're not leaving the planet. Last couple chapters of Revelation, heaven's coming to earth. There's going to be a great overlapping. And I don't know what that means. I just know we ain't leaving and he's going to reform it all. He said it was good and he's going to redo it. Like we can't let go of that. Uh, one, of the, one of the main issues that has killed the church, it is, it is a manifestation of modernist thinking from, from the Enlightenment 250 years ago. And it's this idea that earth is bad and spirit is good. I mean, we've got to let go of that. It's just, it's killer. I could preach on that for a year. I get so wound up. Okay, the third bit of framework is, is a simple question that we need to begin to ask ourselves. What, what's the fruit? That's the question. What's the fruit? We should, also be, we should always be asking ourselves, what's the fruit of this value or this practice or this cultural norm? Jesus said that you could judge a tree by its fruit. Meaning, don't just look at the plant, you need to look at the fruit. As we, as we endeavor to be countercultural people, we need to look at wider culture and we need to ask questions. What are the, what's the fruit of those values? But we also need to be reflective, meditative people about their own life, our own lives. We need to begin to say, what's the value of these choices I'm making? What's the fruit? What's happening here? These, these things that I've said are good. What, what does this grow up into? And we need to not look at just the plant, we need to look at the fruit. For instance, who would tend a vineyard all year long that produced no fruit? Who would go out and work some vines that produce no fruit? Plant those suckers, till those suckers, prune, tuck the vines, and at the end of the year you get nothing. Anybody up for that? No takers. So weird. Well, my family and I, we have 13 acres of wine grapes. I personally have two acres. I had two acres. Now I have one acre. Uh... I planted two different varieties, an acre of each. And one of the varieties I planted was, was a variety called Riesling. Have you all ever had any Riesling? It's a beautiful white wine. And it grew the most beautiful vines in Kentucky. It was the most beautiful. In fact, that one acre of Riesling I had was the most beautiful vines of any of our vineyard. Like, it, it put all the others to shame. They were this dark green, like the leaves were so dark green. And they grew straight up, which is a really big deal because then you don't have to tuck them back inside of the trellis. They just grew straight up. There's hardly any work to them. They just, they were beautiful. And then every single August, there'd be the fruit. And because the clusters were so tight, the berries on the clusters were tight, you couldn't even see any air in them. Every single August, we would get a rain at the end of July and August heat would cause them to rot from the inside out every year. 
And Stephen Clark and I chainsawed them down. Why? Why? Because you because we don't make judgments based upon how beautiful pl- the plant is. We make judgments based upon how good is the fruit. And so when we're endeavoring to live a countercultural life, we need to look at the, the cultural practices uh, and ask ourselves, what is the fruit here? Like, what is this going to lead to? What is it? What is it? And not only, but for ourselves as well. And it sometimes takes a little longer to see the fruit. It may take some patience to let something mature. At the same time, if you've got some foresight, employ it. Because sometimes... Sometimes there are things that are cute and fun as babies, but they're deadly when they're full grown. You ever seen those pictures of like people who are playing with baby lions? You know, like little, oh, it's like, oh, come on. And then inevitably they're like rolling around and the lion's like on top of them. It's like, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Look, it's Simba. You know, they do that. The only problem with Simba is eventually Simba grows up and he bites your face off. You know, there are things that are really, really cute until they eat you. And that's the thing about a lion. A lion will not eat you until the day it eats you. And you never know when it's going to happen. We need, we need to look out at culture. We need to look at American culture and we need to say, is this, is this really cute or is this just a baby lion that's one day going to eat us? Like sometimes we got stuff, we got little pets in our house. We think, oh, isn't this cute? Man, that ain't a tabby cat. It's going to grow up and eat all of your family. No, no, but it's, it's cute. It's like yellow and it's so, and it purrs. Yeah, it purrs until it's 600 pounds and looking for a snack. And then you're like emotionally attached to it. It's like, I couldn't get rid of Simba. It's like, man, he killed your kid. Oh, no, we had him, we raised him, I bottle fed him. Yeah, see, sometimes, sometimes we're taking things in in American culture and we're like, I couldn't imagine not having that. I couldn't imagine not having that be a part of my life. It's always been a part of my life. It was like real cool and cute and it was awesome. It made me friends. But now it's huge and starting to kill people in my family. Well, before it kills anyone in your family, why not employ some foresight and ask yourself, is this a, is this a tabby cat or is this a baby lion? We want to be countercultural, but we should consider our values and we should ask ourselves all the time, what's this like when it's all grown up? That might require some patience because some things, some things have delayed responses. Anybody here have a wisteria at their house? Do you know what a wisteria is? Wisteria is that real pretty vine and it has the really long purple blossoms. They're blooming like now or a couple weeks ago. You've seen those? Sometimes people will put them on like, like a covering, like maybe an outdoor shade covering or something. Have you seen one of those? Uh, Heather and I, we were in Chicago a couple years ago and <clears throat> it was springtime in Chicago and we were down by the lake and like right off Michigan Avenue and there's a park down there and it has like this... Like through the through the center part of the park, there's this center covering, and they have wisterias growing all over it. And probably for half mile, there's just millions of purple wisterias blooming, and the aroma. And there was like honeybees. It was like gorgeous. But I don't know. There's something weird about a wisteria. 
After you plant it, it could take that vine anywhere from 5 to 15 years to bloom. You can look that up. I looked it up on Google yesterday. Yeah, sometimes you need to let things mature. It takes a little time. Like you may, Sometimes you think, well, this thing's no good. So we tend to do one of two things. Some of us in the room tend to you know, grab little lions, and because they're cute when they're babies, keep them until they eat us. Others of us are too impatient. We think, well, it's no good. No, no, no. And we end up, we end up digging it up on year four when if we just let it stay in year five, it would have produced a beautiful blossom, right? So some things are, some things are dangerous, but some things require patience for us to see the fruit. A countercultural movement is always a fruitful movement. A countercultural people are always a fruit people. And here's what it means to be, to be a fruit of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Even fruit people. It means that uh, just like fruit, we're, fruit is meant to nourish and it's meant to delight. And it contains in it the ability to reproduce. This is a really big deal, okay? And so as we become a, a countercultural people, we want to be a delightful, nourishing, reproductive people. And I'm not just talking about babies, but that's part of it too. Uh, by the way, everything in the kingdom of heaven, uh, it, it, it reproduces. If it can't reproduce, it's not the Lord. Just, it isn't the Lord. There's no asexual reproduction in the kingdom of heaven. There's something there. But fruit, fruit is delightful. There's not a piece of fruit on the whole planet that isn't yummy to eat. And it nourishes the body. So that's what should happen. When people encounter us as a countercultural movement, we're not the angry people, get out of my face people. We actually should be a delightful encounter that actually nourishes and strengthens people and causes a kind of reproduction in their own life or a continuation of that original seed that original germ amen well god is calling us to be countercultural here at the vineyard to be unique and distinct not being weird for the sake of being weird but being strange like jesus amen amen hey if you're on the ministry team this morning why don't you come on up hey deborah Connor, come on up. Everybody say hello to Connor. He's our new intern. Awesome. Hey, I want to pray for you guys. Why don't you stand up? If you need prayer for anything, though, come on up. These guys want to pray for you. Um, I would also like to say, just by way of commercial, that we have seen the Lord. There's been a, a just an unbelievable amount of healing here at the Vineyard in the last month and a half. Like crazy, crazy healing uh, in the building and outside of the building. If you're sick in your body, come up and get some prayer. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? Father, would you make us a counterculture people? God, would you, would you allow the unique yeast of the kingdom to raise us up? Father, we ask that all of our lives would be an expression of the unique yeast of the kingdom. God, that our thoughts, that our language would be an expression of your heart. Father, I ask that we would be that we would be like we would be like fruit, God, that an encounter with us would be a delightful encounter that nourishes and that leads to more. And we ask all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, come on up. 
There's a prayer team here for you. If you'd like prophetic ministry, it's Prophetic Sunday. Sign up with Justin. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Go in peace.